Father, we thank you for another morning together, and I do pray for your anointing on this morning, on all of our hearts, that we would be humble to receive, teachable. God, I want to be teachable. I don't want to just jump into this and say, this is it. I want, to be, I want to be driven by grace and love and a heart and concern for the people that you've entrusted to me. God, I pray that we would be open to your truth and then desiring to live it out. Ultimately, that we would bring, that we would bring glory to you and the difference that you make in our relationships here on earth. And so I pray that, God, that you keep my opinion and my agenda to myself, that only your truth would come forth. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone who agrees says, amen. One of my favorite things to do um, as a pastor um, is weddings for a couple that love Jesus a lot. I love it. Um, Getting to go through the premarital counseling stuff with them and just kind of sit with them and take them to lunch and hear their heart. And, and you'll have the ones that are all, they're all super close. It's like, it's always going to feel like this. And it's like, yeah, it is not. But it's like, yes. <laughs> but it can be so good. And so it's just so fun to walk through and build foundational pieces of marriage that I think are necessary in order to experience what God actually wants us to experience out of them. Also realizing that God will use our marriage relationship in our process of sanctification. Like our spouse is God's tool to build us into the likeness of Jesus. And we need to walk together in that with grace and compassion and understanding with one another as we move forward. But to jump through this, uh, but to jump into the wedding of a couple that just loves Jesus a lot, there's just something different. In fact, I tell couples this, especially if they love Jesus. And there's times I'll, I'll do a wedding for a couple that they're not part of the church, they don't really love the Lord, and I just have to walk through that. But I use it as an, op- an opportunity that I can share Jesus with them through the whole process. But when it's a couple that gets it, like they love Jesus more than each other, 100% of the time, I can tell you this, 100% of the time, there's always something different about that wedding. It's just, it's just, there's just this sense, and it's like, oh, you're just into feelings. I'm not really into feelings, but I do know that there's a difference that's something that I feel. Because that's, there's just something when God is the guest of honor, like he is the one that everyone wants to be there. When the couple's kind of like, we want Jesus to be noticed the most, there's always something different. I actually tell the couple that. It's like, I'm telling you. It's like, I'll sit down and I'm telling you, because you love Jesus so much, your wedding is going to be amazing. Whether or not I stumble through the words or get choked up and just say whatever, it's going to be amazing. In fact, there was this wedding I did years and years and years ago when I first started out in ministry. And it's what caused me to write out word for word my notes for weddings. And you said, I go, you don't do that for your messages? Obviously not. I seem to go off onto tangents a little bit here and there. It's been known to happen, but not weddings. I usually stick to the script. And because there was this one time as I, did the, as I was performing the wedding ceremony, I stuttered a lot. Like for some reason, I just kept getting stuck on my words. And I know it's hard to believe because I'm so eloquent. But um, <laughs> so I remember it. As, and I knew it. I felt it. And I thought, man, there's no way that everyone's missing this. And so uh, I didn't say anything after the wedding, but I saw this. <clears throat> I, saw the, I saw this couple probably a few years after. And I said, oh my gosh, it's so good to see you. And I said, you know, I just want to, it's been on my heart ever since your wedding day. I just, I really felt like I stuttered a lot. And, but I, I thought your wedding was amazing, but I, I just really felt like I stuttered a lot. <laughs> this was her response. She said, it's okay. That was it. <laughs> there wasn't a whole lot of explanation afterwards. It wasn't like, no, no, it was fine. We didn't even notice. It was, it's okay. Which I thought, 
Elmer Fudd was leading right there. Like I was leading your wedding. But one thing I always tell couples in their premarital counseling is this. It's one thing that it's, this is the foundational piece for me. I remember on our wedding day, uh, Kelly was in, uh, which by the way, she's in the nursery. When you don't see her, it's not like she's like, I don't like your preaching. It's not that. She actually thinks I'm sexier when I preach. And so it's not that. She's in there working with the kiddos. But she's in uh, getting ready for the wedding to start and her nanny is in there. Her nanny was so important to her. And her nanny and Pappy were together for 64 years total. And still flirty. Like I've, I've shared this before, kind of uncomfortably flirty. Like I remember when I first met them and it was in Outwater where her parents are and, and I shake their hands and they were, they, like, Nanny was little, just great to meet some nicest people. Then they walk into the, the family room and then she sat on Pappy's lap. And I, I remember looking around going, there are a lot of chairs here. Like this is like middle school love. Like what is this? But I mean, they would, even at home, they lived in this 600 square foot apartment in Centralia, Kansas, which if you've never been to a small town, visit one. They're amazing. And they just sit across, like they have these little rocking chairs and they sit and hold hands while they're watching TV. It's just, this is them. And so on our wedding day, Kelly said, how do you have this? Like, what is the most important thing that I need to know so that we have this? And she says, oh, honey. And I'm like, oh, grandmas can get away with that. Can you imagine me walking up to any of you going, oh, honey, that just doesn't work. It doesn't feel right. She says, oh, honey, you hear people say marriage is 50-50. She goes, that's not true. You kind of go, what? She goes, well, it's, it's, marriage is 110-110. You give yourself your all to meet his needs. And he gives himself, his, his self, himself completely to you to meet your needs. Your needs will be met. I like simple country wisdom. Because it's true, and I think that it's biblical. If, I was to, if you were to ask, what's the foundation, I think, that is so important for marriages to continue to be strong? He said, they go, love. Okay. I think it's service. That is, I would serve Kelly and she would serve me out of this heart for love. And we can sit there and go, love, but what does that look like? I've told you before that my, my wife has the spiritual gift of service. So it'd be one thing if she didn't and we're going to serve together because I don't believe that I have that spiritual gift, which is exhausting to try to keep up with her. Like she'll always be thinking of how she can serve another person and I'm sitting there going, yeah, that's right. I, would, I don't automatically think like that. And like even when the boys, they'd get sick in the middle of the night, it's kind of like I would hear it. Like when they were little, I'd hear it and go, I should get up. And then I'd wait to see if Kelly moves a little bit. And then she did, and she's like, I got it. And I'm like, oh, I was going to go. You sure? Are you sure? Because I'll go. <laughs> but just constantly serving, constantly serving to meet the needs of the other person. But if I walk into it this way saying, hey, I'll meet you halfway. We'll go 50-50. Here's the problem with 50-50. What if my definition of 50 is not their definition of 50? What if my definition of 50 is not Kelly's, but I'm only hitting 45? And my definition for her, it's like, oh, say, you're doing 50. Yeah, you're doing pretty well. But today is like a 47. But she's thinking she's hitting 50-50. We're just doing everything 50-50, 50-50. Guys, I don't know how we gauge what's rightly 50. But if I can look at the example of Jesus, and I say, I'm going to go 110% to meet your needs. And she's going to go 110% to meet mine. It doesn't mean that it's all perfect. We don't miss things. But at least my desire is that when we do might miss things, that we would actually go, okay, so what was it I missed? And we go 110 again. Why do I think it's service? Again, if we just look at that passage that I said, 
Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. In our culture, that word submit, it's like, what? Mm-mm, you didn't go there. What does it really mean in the original language? It actually means that. It actually is another word for obey. You're like, oh, I don't like that one. But what if we unpack the concept of marriage so that maybe it's not as offensive as it's turned into be? And, lo- and husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That's what it says in Ephesians chapter 5. That my love for my wife is supposed to be different than anybody else is. I'm supposed to look at her and say, okay, how did Jesus love the church? He completely emptied himself completely emptied himself to serve the church to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so wives, this is what you can say to your husband when you're just having one of those moments and you guys are just not getting along. You say, you know, why don't you just love me like Jesus and die? Don't, no, don't do that. But, <laughs> but what if, like husbands, what if we were known? You sit there and go, I just want to love my wife. I'll give up everything else so that my wife is cared for. You sit there and go, oh, but are you whipped? Yes, be whipped. Because Jesus literally was for us his church. And if we serve and we lay down our lives, then maybe this concept of submit isn't as offensive if everyone did their part based upon what the scriptures teach. And so we're going to go back to Colossians chapter 3 at the very end, but we're going to jump into Mark chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 9. If you don't, it'll be up on the screen. Verse 30, Jesus is walking along with his disciples, and look what he says. It says, they went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. It's so easy to look and go, how could you not understand it? It's pretty straightforward. I mean, Jesus is saying, I'm going to be killed pretty soon, and in three days, I'm going to come back from the dead. Now, part of that would be that maybe they didn't understand it because it's that resurrection part. Never heard of anything like that happening. How could this be literal? Was he talking in parables? Was he talking in allegories? Like, what is he talking about? But in another case, he says this, I'm going to die. In three days, I'm going to be killed. Not in three days, but I'm going to be killed, and then three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. And then watch the very next conversation that happens. When they came to Capernaum, I'm sorry, and they came to Capernaum, verse 33. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Never had that kind of conversation, have you? Like when you were little, you never thought you were the favorite kid over the sibling, right? Never. You never asked your parents that. Hey, which one do you love better? Which one do you love more? And if your parents were loving and normal, they would say, we don't have favorites. And if they said they had favorites, it's like, oh, maybe there's some counseling you need to go through. But on this, think about it. He just said, he just got done. I'm going to be killed. And then three days later, I'm going to come back from the dead. From then on until where they got, what did they argue about? They didn't try to figure it out. They didn't ask questions of Jesus. They said, I'm his favorite. I'm better than you are. I'm better than you are. Do you ever wonder why Jesus picked these guys? Like at some point, did you miss? Like I'm pretty sure there's better ones. It's like it just went right over their heads. I'm, got, I'm better than you. I'm better than you. And they're just arguing it. Who is the greatest? Verse 35. And he sat down and called the 12. And he said to them, now watch. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. 
So when I meet with these couples and I say, if there's one verse I want you to live out, this is the one verse. If you apply those one verse, I'm convinced you'll be okay. Go back to it again. If anyone would be first, he or she must be last. But we don't applaud last, do we? I mean, the last place finisher, we don't applaud them. The Olympics, you don't have gold, silver, and bronze, and then last place. An honorable mention. Guys, I have a hard enough time remembering who went, like which team won which championship last year. Like, I, I, sometimes I forget that. But I definitely don't know who was last. But we, we remember the stories of those who are last when it's something that seems heroic. Remember years ago, track and field, I don't remember the guy's name, and I think he was from the UK, and right at the get-go, his hamstring just, boom, just pulls it or tears it, and he can't go. Like, he just collapses. Everything he'd worked for to go for the gold, he can't do it. And so what's he do? I mean, the, the race is pretty much done. I think this is the 400 meters. It's pretty much over. And so what's he do? He just stands up, and he begins to hobble. And all of a sudden, the crowd, when they were watching first place, they're not watching that anymore because it's over. They're not watching him hobble if you remember the video, just look it up. You can find it. All of a sudden, this, this older guy comes running out. And he starts to get close to him. And one of the officials tries to push him out. He's like, get off me. He's like, he's getting ready to punch him out. And I thought, this is going to be fantastic. Well, who was the guy? Well, it was his dad. And his dad comes alongside and just walks the rest of the 350 meters with him. Why does everyone remember that? Because it's heroic. But what if you're never noticed would you still be okay with last? I feel like we don't live in a culture where it's appreciated. We live in a culture where everything needs to be known and everything needs to be noticed. Everything needs to be heard about, not really heard about. It just needs to be seen and read about because we just post everything. And here comes Jesus going, man, if anyone wants to be first, be last. Be servant of all. And spouses, apply that first to home. I think one of the worst things that I could ever hear is, especially if it's a man that looks at a woman and says, you're supposed to submit. Because when that's the attitude, the husband looks nothing like Jesus. And it's, in my opinion, taking God's name in vain. You see, they go, he didn't say, oh my God. He didn't say that. I don't think that that's all that that means. Think about it, out of the top 10 that God could throw out as the commandments to hold, we're just supposed to make sure that we don't say, oh my God. That's it? Or is taking God's name in vain something like this? Hey, I want to push an agenda. I'm going to somehow connect God to it. Therefore, if I connect God to, do it, God to it, then everybody has to do it, which means I'm taking God's name and all the authority that comes with God's name, and I'm taking God's name in vain. Do you think maybe it's more that? And so when people just jump to that, when men especially jump to that, I just sit and go, you look nothing, sound nothing like Jesus. I'm supposed to be last and I'm supposed to be servant of all and friends I am I'm on the journey just like everyone else but oh I see the difference when it happens move from there go to one chapter over to Mark chapter 10 starting in verse 35 
So now some time has passed and John, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. It's kind of bold, right? And then he says, okay, so what do you want me to do for you? And he said, to grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. We want the top seats. Like we want, there's you, but right next to you, we're there. Now there's another gospel account that is actually, they were involved in the conversation, but you know who actually kind of started it? Their mama. Mama jumps up to Jesus going, I want you to put my sons one on each side, one on the right, one on the left. And then you can imagine looking over at the boys going, hello, you sent your mom? Come here. What do you guys want? We want to sit on your right hand and on your left in your glory. And Jesus said to him, do you know what you're asking? Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? What's he talking about there? What cup are they talking about? Well, in the Old Testament, the, the cup is a representation of the wrath of God. Are you able to take on that which is going to come upon me? Are you able to take on what it is that I'm going to endure? And what's the baptism? Can you experience the persecution that, that, I'm that I will experience? Can you experience the death that I'm going to take on? Like it's like you do not understand what it is that you're asking. That when I'm glorified, there is a cross that is in my path in order for me to experience, quote unquote, being glorified. Are you sure that you can handle this? And they said to him, we are able. Isn't it weird they didn't ask for any clarification? It's like, what do you mean by cup? What do you mean by baptism? They're like, yep. You ever notice how arrogant we get when we're connected to ignorance? When God asks a question and we don't ask for clarification, we just say yes because this is what I want. Sometimes I think we need to pull back and just say, God, what did you mean by that? And wait for him to give the answer. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit in my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared. Now, wait a minute. Jesus is fully God. He's the second person of this triune God. So he has all authority. And yet here in this verse, it sounds like there's something that he's not allowed to do. To sit in my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. Well, how does that make any sense? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all equal in being God. All authority. They have all authority. So what is he saying here? Guys, you realize that within the Trinity, now since they go, oh, here we go, theology again, yeah, because it does play here. Within the Trinity, all of all, each member, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, fully God, all authority, all power, their creation, everything but different roles. The Father didn't take the cross, the Son did. Jesus doesn't dwell in me, but the Holy Spirit does. So Jesus does by his Holy Spirit. And all of this to the glory of the Father. So here comes Jesus showing within the Trinity, there is this concept or understanding of he, he was subordinate to the Father. And yet it didn't change his value. It didn't change who he was. He actually says it, it's more clear in Matthew chapter 20, verse 23. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And look at the response of the rest of the disciples in verse 41. And when the ten heard it, they began to be what? Indignant at James and John. You ever wonder why? This is my interpretation. This is my guess. Because those two asked before they could. 
It's like, how dare you? I cannot believe you would actually ask him that before I got to ask him that. Guys, isn't there this push? I feel like in the, well, I can only speak as a pastor from a church setting. It seems like a whole lot of conferences that are built for pastors, it has nothing to do with shepherding. Not a lot. It's all about leadership. And don't get me wrong, there's a spiritual gift of leadership. But it's always leadership. Oh, come be a better leader. Be a better leader. Be a better leader. I'm like, but what does that look like with regards to in a church? What does it look like as a follower of Jesus? Not just who gets to be in charge. You ever notice that? We like to be in charge. How do I know? Because nobody wants to be told what to do. If you could be the boss, wouldn't you do it so much better than that boss if you don't like that boss? And so just go to leadership things and get all these leadership books. And there's so many leadership books. And suddenly I'm like, who are you leading? It's like one person leading yourself. I'm like, I don't see a lot of leadership there because it's really easy to follow me if I'm just leading me. But it's always leadership, leadership, leadership. And I'm like, what, whatever happened? And why don't I hear it all that much? Because Jesus introduces a different kind. In Mark chapter 10, 42, he goes on. He says, and Jesus called them to him and said, you know that those who considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercised authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. You know your favorite news outlet? That pretty much there's not a lot of news unless it's happening in Washington. That's like pretty much the whole news of your favorite news outlet. But when you watch those who are in authority over us, does it not seem that the majority of them are finding ways to lord it over? And here comes Jesus saying, if you have a place of leadership, then you should look completely different. It shouldn't be this, do this because I say so. It should be, do what you see me doing. That the leader will actually lead the way, show the way. This is what you should do. Not just, hey, this is what you should do and I'm gonna back off. Now go do it. No, no, no. Come with me. Like inspire. If you have a place of leadership, inspire people to go with you, not for you. So, well, show me the example. Jesus. Jesus showed up as a person and he showed how to live this life. Because he's fully God and empties himself of the majesty of being glory or being, being God while still being God as a person and showed how to live this life. He did not have to. Think about it. If all it was about was to reconcile us to God, just to die on a cross, come back from the dead, he didn't have to start as a baby. He could just show up, tick off a few people, and in a week, get it all done and take off. But when you start thinking... Jesus learned obedience. According to, the, according to the writer of Hebrews, Jesus learned obedience through what? Suffering. We have a God who suffered the same way we suffered and even more so. So he says, but it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Like, well, why should I do that? And then he gives the reason, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So guys, when it all comes down to it, married friends, when it all comes down to it, it's like, they're not, into, they're not holding up their end of the bargain. 
I'm almost positive that the vow that you made before them did not say, I will do this so long as you do your part. Now, if it did and they still said yes to you, good night. But I don't usually hear a lot of vows that way. Sometimes you'll get the people that want to get really poetic with their vows, like we want to write our own and I'll actually say, well, I'd like to see what they are so that they're actually vows and not just this expression of emotion that you think is going to constantly go no matter what. Oh, as long as I feel love for you, the river of love that will flow from my heart, like as it just flows out. And you can have those experiences, but that's not a vow. The vow is no matter what, hell or high water, no matter how difficult it is or mountaintop experience, I'm in. But if we don't connect this attitude of service out of love for Jesus, your marriage, my marriage, our marriages will turn into duty. This is what I'm supposed to do. This is what I have to do rather than this is an opportunity for me to serve the person that God has entrusted to me that I entered into covenant relationship. Guys, catch this. There's only two people you enter into covenant relationship with. One, Jesus. To your spouse. That's it. And both of them, they're supposed to be identified and described as what? Full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, Self-control. Dang, Brian, did you get that from a book? I did. I did. How do you get that? Here it is. Guys, I wish I could say, here's the 14 steps. Here's the 12 steps. Here's how to fix every marriage. The two steps do these. Maybe, maybe it's just supposed to be more simple than this. Abide in Jesus. You abide in Jesus. You have a relationship with Christ where he is everything. I use this. I stole it from another pastor when I heard him do it at a wedding. Uh, actually, so I, saw the video, I saw the video of the wedding, and I thought, oh, I'm using that line because it's so solid. And I've used it here before, and I've taken credit for it every time, but I didn't think of it. He said this in the wedding. He says, love Jesus most, and you will love each other best. You love Jesus most. You love Jesus more than the other person. You're like, I see why you're preaching about this today because Kelly ain't in the room. <laughs> Friends, I'll be honest. She has heard me say this dozens and dozens and dozens of times in places that I preach where she's sitting there. At no point she's sitting there and go, stop it, you heathen. Why? Because when I look at young people, I'm sitting there going, okay, listen, listen, listen. Don't settle. You find someone who loves Jesus more than you so you could be loved amazingly well. So then somebody said, I go, Brian, I had that, and it all unraveled. And I'm, I, I, don't, I'm not, I, I don't know every, I don't know every situation, and I'm not gonna downplay saying, well, if you do it, it's all perfect. Because what if they did love Jesus like crazy, and all of a sudden they just, and it sucks. But what if you get two people who abide, abide in Jesus, and they love Jesus more than each other? Do you realize now you have the Holy Spirit who is helping you and walking with you through your marriage? Guys, there are times, I don't know if you can, I don't even notice this about me. There's a couple things about me. One, I've, I get a little distracted so I could be focused on something, bam, I just take off in another direction. But two, I like things a certain way. 
Like, I don't understand lights being left on. I didn't really understand it when I was young. I was like, that's fine. Lights, that just works. It's all fine. And then you, be, then you become a dad and a husband. You go, all I see when lights are on is like money. And there's no one in there. The laundry room is empty. The bathrooms, no one's even using it. I think, I think Tyler has a spiritual gift. Ser- seriously, and I don't know. Maybe I'm saying too much now. Like, he can use the restroom and then leave it and the light's left on. But if I'm in the restroom and he comes in to do something, he'll turn off the light on me. Not as a joke, but it just seems natural. So I'm just sitting there. And I know we're all reading our phones and I can still... I'm just joking. But it's like, we can still do that. But it's like, why turn it off when I'm in here instead of when I'm not in here? It's like, I can't stand it. So I'm like, how do I fix it? And so thank God for Alexa. Because every light gets turned off now. Of course, my, my kids don't know how to use a light switch, but it's like, I can turn that off. Or I don't like covered doors left open. I don't like that. I don't understand in the kitchen, why are all the covered doors left? Like, why are, they, why are the cupboards open? Like, who's coming? What are we showing? And so I can get a little frustrated over some things. And, and some would say, then you just need to express it. You just need to let them have it. Well, maybe I do, but sometimes that's just foolish. That God would say that. The writer of Proverbs brings that up over and over. Like the fool just says everything that comes to their mind, and the one who's wise actually uses discernment. But do you know how often that like maybe I've gotten, I've gotten upset about something and it's just kind of me? You know how often this is the question that comes to my mind? Brian, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Yes. As it, but then the, the answer's not quite good enough. Is it really worth it? Like what you're frustrated over, this isn't even on them. This is on you. Is this really worth it? And I know what Kelly's doing the whole time. Like say I get frustrated in front. I know what she's doing. She's in the other room praying for the Holy Spirit to just lay down on me. No, lovingly, just pray. Because the Holy Spirit will do that. He just convicts us. That as I abide in Jesus, the Holy Spirit will not let me treat his daughter, my bride, in a manner unworthy of him. And so we need to stay sensitive to him, the Holy Spirit. And then we need to take our cue from Jesus. So we're abiding in Jesus, loving him more than we love each other, and being obedient to what he's called us to do. Philippians chapter 2, 5 to 8. He says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, think about if you just apply these verses to your marriage relationship. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. If you just stop there and go, just do that. Might you see a difference? So what's the reason I should do it? Here it is. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And the thing is, this is not this is not just a passage for the men. I know he said, husbands, love your wives like Christ led the church. Okay, so do it like Jesus, but the women are off the hook. This is a passage for all of us. 
I'm supposed to humble myself. Well, why should I? Because Jesus, who's God, did it and does it. He's always the reason for everything, the motivation. That if for some reason you're in a season where it's just hard to love your special, like, well, why should I? Because while I was an enemy of the cross, Christ died for me out of love for me. That Jesus came and emptied himself of the majesty and glory that comes with being God. And humbled himself to the point of death. Even the most shameful, excruciating death on a cross. For whom? His bride, the church. Jesus is always the motivation behind everything. But especially when we come into this topic, so that a verse is not taken out of context. And it becomes kind of like this, kind of like this dictator mentality. Or just, oh, we're just not even really passionate about either part of this. But if we look at it saying, okay, we're just trying to serve each other. I'm trying to outserve you. Guys, for those that are competitive, put your hand up. Who's competitive? Ah, oh, that's fantastic. Who's going to win today? Oh, both hands go up against like, ah, oh, I'll take you down. Guys, here's the thing. Make it a competition to outserve one another. Make it a competition. There's a few weddings that I'm looking around the room going, oh, I've done some weddings. And that is something that I say in almost every wedding. Oh, make it a competition to outserve one another. So at the end of the day, you can actually look and say, I won. Good luck tomorrow. What a fun competition. But why would I do it? Because I love Jesus. And so when you get to a passage, I can't take the word away. Guys, it says it here in Colossians. The same thing is said here in Ephesians 5. Peter brings it up in 1 Peter 3. I think Paul writes it in Titus chapter 2. And so guys, if it's just one place, well, maybe it's just for one person. But when it's repeated over and over, it's these phrases I'm really thinking the scriptures are saying, I need you to approach this humbly on both sides. Gentlemen, gentlemen unless, instead of us saying, I should be served, no, we're going to serve. Because you realize that in this culture, you know the ones who would be most offended by what Paul said here would be the men. Like the wives are sitting there and go, submit to your husbands. Yeah, of course. They'd sit there and go, that's what we always do. And we'll get into more what the culture was then because it was horrid. It was horrible. But when you listen to this from a place of trying to serve one another, headship and what does it look like and leadership and servant leadership, and we're going to unpack it more and more as we go instead of just jumping to conclusions. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. That last part, don't be harsh with them. I think it just means like this. You didn't marry one of, your, one of the guys. It's like, oh, I love my wife. I can talk to her like one of the guys. Really? Are you sure she likes that? Doesn't mean you can't joke. I, I know I talk to some couples and their trash talk is awesome. And they have so much fun with it. But still, my call is to love my wife like Christ loved the church and to treat her according to 1 Peter 3, the way that it's worded, that she should be treated as fine porcelain, not rough. Why? Men and women are different. Men and, different. men and women are different. God created the genders, male and female, 
for a purpose and for a reason. And in this marriage relationship, two people that are opposite. How do I know you're opposite? Because Adam and Eve, and we'll look at this probably next week. When God looks at Adam and says, I'm going to make a helper fit for you. That word fit there in the Hebrew means I'm going to make a helper who is completely opposite you. Why? So your strengths and her strengths and your weaknesses and your weaknesses, you bring them together, two opposites. You bring them together to complement one another, all to the glory of Jesus. God knew and knows what he's doing. As the worship team comes back up, I close with this one final verse. I've already used it. I say it again. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Now, friends, we can apply that in our marriages, but we can apply that in life. True. How about when you drive? How many, to be honest, you get to that stop sign and the person on the right gets to go first and it's you, so you get there as quick as you can. And even if not, boom, take off. But it's also the opposite of all of a sudden comfortable whenever you just keep waving each other and everyone's waiting. You're like, you go, no, you go, you go. Can you imagine two Christians trying to outserve each other at the same stop sign? People would be so ticked. <laughs> but what if we looked for opportunities to serve rather than thinking that they'll find us? What if we became proactive? What if we became intentional? How can I serve someone today that I normally wouldn't? This Tuesday, we'll have an oppor- I will have an opportunity again. My neighbor and I, we have a battle going on. We try to see who can get their, their trash cans in first. Not my own. And, it's like every, and he beats me every time, jerk. It's like this 80-something-year-old man. Here he is bringing all my trash cans in. I'm like, Sal, remember when you didn't like me? Remember when we first moved in, we were too loud? But that simple act, moving a basketball court from the backyard to the front yard so it made less noise for him, and I didn't want to because I was pretty proud. It was humbling when he said, I don't know how we got on the topic. I said, Sal, we're just, I'm just so thankful for you. I'm so thankful. You're kind of, you and your wife are so great. And to hear him go, no, no, you and your family are so great. And I was like, you're right. We're pretty, no, I'm just, I didn't say that. <laughs> a rough start in the beginning and I didn't want to do these things. But when the Holy Spirit put on my heart, I believe it was him. I say that lightly. Or I don't say it lightly. Is it worth it? Is his eternity worth your pride? No. He'll do that with any other relationship, especially within my marriage. Is it worth it? No. I vowed I would do this. And I will do this with that person that I'm in covenant relationship with, no matter what. I'm going to serve. I'll be last. God, I do it because I love you. Let me pray. Father, we give you thanks for this morning, a time to come and to celebrate you. And I do pray that there's conviction and encouragement. God, I pray for those, they they would like to be married, but they're not. And so maybe some would say, I'm not ready. And others would say, I'm totally ready. God, I pray that they would trust your timing, that they would stay committed to the process of your sanctifying work in in them, that they'd become the quote-unquote Mr. or Mrs. Wright that Mr. or Mrs. Wright is looking for, that they would be the person, the man or woman of God, ready to serve and to give them themselves completely for another person out of love for Jesus. But I pray that same thing for our our uh, our married people. God, may we be an example to the world 
this is what it looks like. Man, woman coming together in covenant with a desire to serve and to love one another like Jesus loves us, the church. The sense of headship and submission and not looking at who's in charge, but who can serve most. Oh God, there needs to be a revival in this. There needs to be healing. And so Holy Spirit, I pray that that would happen and start here in our community. God, we love you and we thank you. And as we offer this last song together in community to you, to you be all the praise, all the glory, and all the honor for you alone are worthy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Whenever who agrees says, amen. For those of you that were willing to pray with people, if you could go to the sides again. And if anybody wants to come and have prayer about anything, please go to the sides. Anyone that, any of them would love to pray for you. Let's jump back into this last song of worship. Love you guys more than you know.